Great. So uh, we've been working through our book, way through the book of Ruth, and tonight is actually our last installment. So we're going to be in chapter 4, uh, if you want to go ahead and get flipped over to that. And it's, we've kind of been working through this series called Redeeming Ruth, and tonight is kind of the apex of that all, because tonight we're talking about God in my redemption. And we're going to be talking about redemption and what that looks like and how that works in our lives and how it worked in the lives of Ruth and her family. And um, so as I was kind of preparing for this this week, I was thinking about, you know, like it's like all the craze right now um, to make all these new movies about superheroes. You guys notice this? Like, it seems like there's like five at a time coming out. Um, and so I started thinking about like when I was a kid about like my favorite superhero. So let's just do like a quick poll. I'm just curious. Who, are you, who was your favorite superhero when you were growing up? Just shout it out. Spider-Man, Spider-Man Batman. What? I, I thought you said Aquaman for a second and I was going to have to like take you out and have a talking. <laughs> Iron Man's good. Okay, who else? Wonder Woman, all right. We, we can represent the females in the house. That's all right. Captain America, okay, good. So here's what I know. For, so for me, when I was growing up, my favorite superhero was Wolverine. And some people would be like, that's not really a superhero because like, he was a major loner and pretty rebellious. And, but he always won, and the guys he beat were always worse than he was. So I count him as a superhero, okay? Um, but what I know about the more classic superheroes, like the superheroes that they're coming out with today, and I'm, I'm, I'm talking about like the remakes they're doing, but like the new ones they're making up for our kids and stuff, that, you know, Disney has going on and Nickelodeon and stuff. I've noticed they all have like either teams of people, teams with them, or they have sidekicks, right? Like there's always like the group going on. Like the classic superheroes, like they did it by themselves, right? Like the original Batman and Superman, Spider-Man, like it was them. Like they came in, like when the world was in trouble, when the city was falling apart, there was one person you called and they came and they fixed it all. Are you with me on that? Right? I think that's a great example of what the Bible teaches us about redemption. Because what the Bible tells us is this, and this is the first thing in your notes, my redemption is from the Lord alone. When things go bad in our lives, when things go sideways, when things get broken, there is one and one person alone who can take care of that. And we're going to be looking at that tonight through this text. So let's pick up in verse 13 of chapter 4 there. It says, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. First thing we see here in the text in terms of redemption is this. God redeems. God is the one who redeems. And we're going to see in this particular text three specific areas where he does that. So first of all, God redeems my past. For Ruth here, you got to remember when we started this story, Ruth was a foreigner, she was barren, she was a widow, like she, things were not going well for her, right? And now we've come to the culmination of the story and we find out here that Boaz marries her, so now she's a beloved wife and she has, she conceives and now she's a mother and now she's part of Jerusalem, she's part, or part of Israel rather, like she's in, like God has redeemed her from that past and brought her into this new place. And, and what I want you to notice, a couple things here in this particular section is this. Number one, um, the, the language it uses there, it says that when they got married, that Boaz went into her, okay? And, and that's repeatedly the language that the Old Testament uses for sexual intercourse. Why is that important? Because the book of Ruth doesn't use that language until now. 
there would be some who would be skeptical of the book of Ruth, and they would say, well, some of the stuff that happened back on the threshing floor, if you were here for that episode, um, that's kind of questionable, and I don't know what really all went down there, and like, but it never used this language, because nothing inappropriate happened because they were worthy, right? We talked about Boaz and Ruth have proven they have worthy character, but here, now they're married, now it's all good, right? That's how it works. That's what God says. When you get married, go for it, and so that's what happens, and, and, and they get married, and, and he, they, they, they come together in this intimate way, and the Lord gives her conception. That's the language it uses. Do you see that? The Lord gave her conception. What's that tell us? God is the author of life. We need to be reminded of that, don't we? Like, we have a role to play in it for sure, okay? Like, babies only get here a certain way. We all know that. But bottom line is God is the author of life. And he's reminding us here, because you got to remember, Ruth's story is that previously she was married to this other guy named Malon for 10 years, and they were unable to conceive. You remember that part? Right? And now all of a sudden, her and Boaz get married, and first time around, here comes a son. All right? God did that. God's the author of life. He opens her womb, much like many of the famous women in the Israelite history, right? The Israelites started with Abraham and Sarah, who was barren, and God opened her womb, and she had Isaac, the son of promise, that starts the whole story. And then you have Rachel, who couldn't conceive for a long time, and God finally gave her conception. You have Hannah. In the New Testament, you have Elizabeth, who gave birth to John the Baptist after so many years. Like, this is a, a common thing that when God is moving and his, his hand shows up, he does this. And we've seen throughout the story that God works in two ways. We've talked about this several times, right? So God works in two ways. He works in, one way he works is his invisible hand of providence, where he's working behind the scenes, in the circumstances, just kind of lining things up. We can't really tell what's going on, but he's working it all out, and somehow it works out for good. He does that a lot in this story. He does that a lot in our lives. But occasionally, less often, but still occasionally, he shows up in the second way, and that's his visible hand of miracle where he actually reaches into the world and changes something that can be explained no other way than God did that. The first time he did that in the story was whenever Bethlehem was going through this famine that was the whole reason that Naomi and her family left, right? And it says that the Lord visited them and that he removed that from them and he gave them rain and crops again and he relieved that famine in Bethlehem. That was a miracle that he did. And the only, only other place in the entire book that it uses that kind of language and that kind of of, of assigning this to God's visible hand of miracles is right here where God provides a son to a dying family. And it says that she bore a son and it's important that it says son because in this culture, sons were more valuable than daughters. I know in our culture today, that's not politically correct to say and there's some problems with that, but bottom line was for a lot of economic and social reasons, they just were more valuable they were the ones who could actually carry on the family name, which was a huge deal in Israelite culture. They were also the ones who would oftentimes provide provision and protection for other family members as they got older, right? Like they were, they, they had some extra worth to what they brought to the table. It's just what it was. It's just how it worked. And so not only has God opened her womb and she been able to give birth to a child, it's not any child, it's a son, Right? God is redeeming Ruth from her past. And he's giving her a new life, a new family, a new place to belong. But he doesn't just redeem my past, he also redeems my present. 
We see that here with Naomi, actually. And so after it tells us that Ruth gave birth to a son, it then turns to Naomi, and it says that, you gotta remember, when Naomi came back to Bethlehem, she was this destitute, bitter widow, almost nameless. She's like, no, my name's not Naomi anymore. Call me, I don't know, Mara, right? Like, I'm bitter. I don't like God. God's hand has went out against me. She came back pretty shaken. And now we're gonna see that she's now a blessed, revived, loving, beloved grandmother in this family that's going to do great things. But the way the women talk about it, it says that she came back empty and now she's full. It says the women came around her. These, this same group of godly women have now brought community to her life. And when she was mourning, they mourned with her. And now that she's rejoicing, they're going to rejoice with her. That's what community is. That's what we should be for one another as believers in the church is locking arms, walking through life together, mourning when they mourn, rejoicing when they rejoice. We do this life together. So Naomi has her women around her, and they say this. They say, the Lord has given her a redeemer. But notice here, up to this point, who's been the redeemer in the story? It's been Boaz. They're not talking about Boaz. No, it's the grandson now that's the redeemer. Why? Because God isn't just redeeming the past. He's shown up right in the present right in the middle of Naomi's hurt and pain and destitute life, he's shown up and he's given her a grandson. And he's going to redeem her in multiple ways. Like I said earlier, because he's a male, eventually he's going to provide protection and provision for the family, including her. He's going to be the one who provides posterity for her family name that's going to carry on, as we're going to see at the end of the chapter here. But I think even more so in this moment, in the present, he's her redeemer because he is a tangible See it, touch it, feel it. Example and reminder of God's loving provision in her life. We need that sometimes, don't we? (laughs) Sometimes when things are just, I mean, like when we are just really beside ourselves, when things are broken, when things aren't going right, we need God to give us something that we can just, we've got the word, we've got prayer, we've got him, but sometimes we just need something we can grab a hold of and be reminded that God is for us and he's, he's there with us and he's redeeming us even in the midst of our hard circumstances. And so she has this grandson and, and not only we're going to find out is, is he her redeemer now, he is, he's going to be the forefather of her eternal redeemer that's yet to come. We'll get to that in a second. But the other women say one more thing. They call Ruth, they say Ruth is her prized daughter. They say, she's more to you than seven sons. Now, if you know anything about the Bible and numbers, you know seven is the number of perfection, right? And we already said that sons were more valuable in this culture. So to say that your family had seven sons, in Israelite terms, that was the perfect family. Like, the perfect family, seven sons. And they say, Ruth, this daughter of, law, uh, of yours that came from Moab and had nothing and was no one is now to you more than seven sons. God has shown up in the middle of everything and, and blessed Naomi beyond compare. But he also redeems our future. And again, we see that here for Naomi 
they go on to talk about Naomi and talk to her about what's going on. And they say, you came from this bleak, unknown point of despair and now you have new life and you have loving provision and this grandson, he's gonna be a restorer of life to you, they say, a nourisher of your old age. In other words, we would say, he's gonna be your retirement plan, your 401k, your social security, whatever you wanna call it, he's going to take care of you. He's her future. But I think there's also something else here that happens. I, I don't know if, if we're, depending on where you're at in your stage of life and so forth, you know, we have little kids now and, and, and I've talked to my parents, I've talked to other people who are grandparents and, and my dad has told me repeatedly, he's like, you know what, being a grandpa is much better than being a dad. Like, it's just like way, and, and there's something about, but there's something about when, a, when grandbabies come, grandkids keep you young and they give you new life. And I think Naomi needed that. I think she, I mean, she lost her sons. She lost her husband. She had, I mean, her family was pretty much gone until Ruth decided to stick around. And now it's come full circle and she has this new grandbaby and she is just beside herself at the future possibility of this relationship with this grandson of her own bloodline who's going to be the, the, the heir of everything in her family. It's a really, really beautiful picture. I, when I think about God's redemption in our lives, past, present, future, I, I, don't, know, I don't know all of your stories, but I, I hope you can look back at your life and see what I can look back at my life and see, which is God has really done a marvelous work in redeeming my brokenness. Um, most of you do know at least my testimony because you've been to some event or a meeting where I've shared that. And you know that our family went through a divorce when I was fairly young and, and we had a broken home. And because of that, um, I was, I kind of had a front row seat to a parade of unhealthy relationships and unhealthy role models, whether that be in the home or outside the home or people in our neighborhood or pe- like, and, and not only did I have that, I had, it came to a point where I had unfettered access to sinful sexuality, whether that be through the internet, whether that be through TV, movies, whether that be through magazines, like it just, it was all around me, and it, my life just sunk deep into that stuff. And it broke me in a lot of ways. And it didn't hit me how broken I was until it finally came to a tipping point about three months into our marriage. We've been married for three months, and it comes out that I have this lust problem that has to be dealt with. And God just, it just completely comes in and redeems this broken side of who I was. And through the graciousness of my wife and through the loving care of our marriage, he starts to rebuild things and it leads to this future that, don't get me wrong, if I could go back and do it differently, I would. But now that it's done, he uses that and the future has been so unbelievable. The the strength of our marriage after going through that, I just, I can't imagine what it would be like if if we hadn't had an event like that to strengthen us and pull us together and make us walk through fire together. As a parent, uh, the way I teach my girls about our culture and about all these things that are going on in regards to that in our world, it's completely different. He's taken that brokenness, he's redeemed it for something better in the future. In ministry, I've been able to sit down with countless men and walk them through, here's, one, here's the problem, here's what you can do, here's how we pray about this, here's the safeguards, and, and walk them and disciple them through that process of getting clean and getting victory over that in their lives. Just this past week, 
I had the privilege of going and speaking on a panel at our old alma mater, Missouri Baptist University here in St. Louis. And I got to speak to about 20 or 30 college guys on what's it mean to be a man of integrity, specifically in the area of sexual purity. When God finds brokenness in your life, if you will come to him and humble yourself and let him, he will take that brokenness and he will redeem it and he will make something beautiful out of it. You might not be able to see it yet, but one day you will. And I hope you've had some of those experiences and I hope you have more of those experiences. I hope I have more of those experiences as we continue to walk with the Lord. And so my question to you on this one would be, what, what has God redeemed in your life? When you look back, when you look through your past, when you look back through your history, what has God redeemed in your life? Because when we look back and we remember those things, we're able to look at his faithful redemption in your past and it gives us eyes for hope of what the future has to bring. But we have to remember that he's a God who redeems and he's a God who has redeemed. Past, present, future. All right, so let's go back to the text. Look at verse 14 again. It says, Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons and has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed, and he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Amminadab, Amminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Second thing I want you to see here about redemption is this. My redemption is God's idea. It's God's idea. It's God's plan. It's not my plan. <laughs> it's not my idea. And again, we can look at this in the past. We can look at it in the present. We can look in the future. In the past, it's always been God's plan to redeem. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Before God ever created anything, he already knew there would be a need for redemption and he already had a plan to accomplish that. He had already chose to redeem us before the foundation of the world to bring us in and make us holy and blameless before him. But even once the creation happens and the fall happens and, and Adam and Eve and sin and, and rebel against God in Genesis 3, he also reminds us and tells us that he has this plan to redeem. He says, he's talking to Satan. He says, I will put an anonymity between you and the woman and between her, your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. He's talking here about Jesus. That one day there will be a human who comes who will finally be able to bruise the head of that serpent and end his reign and end his power and give victory through redemption. It's always been God's idea to redeem. But not only in the past, it's also God's idea in the present. Look what happens here in the text for, for Naomi. See, God is intimately involved in our lives. And the women say to her, they say, the Lord has not left you this day without a redeemer. Right? Like, it's not future. 
They're not, they're not saying like, when he finally gets old enough to finally start making some money, then he can redeem you. No, like right now, this day, God has shown up. It's God's plan in action. And it says Naomi then takes him and becomes his nanny, basically. So they said she takes him and nurses him. That's the best we can tell from the original text is she kind of became the nanny for this child and cared for him, uh, for, his, for his parents and stuff. And, and she finally got to be a grandma. And what we see here from Naomi is that she's a godly, involved grandmother. That she's, she's there. And guys, again, I don't know your stage of life. Some of you in here have grandkids. Some of you have kids who have grandparents. So if you don't have kids yet, and you're going to. But any time you can facilitate a relationship between grandparents and grandkids, it's a blessing to everyone involved. If you're a grandparent, get involved in your grandkids' lives. Like, be there and pour into them and love on them. And if you have kids, as much as you can, facilitate and get them in the lives of their grandparents. Especially if they're following the Lord. It is an invaluable thing that we see here. And Naomi finally gets to have that. And so God is, is in, in, in the midst of it all, God's idea is to redeem and to, and to heal in the present, but again, also in the future. You see, God, from day one, all the way till now, all the way till eternity, God is sovereignly working to bring Jesus, the Redeemer, to mankind and to our lives. They say that the child's name is Obed, which literally means servant or worshiper of God. Pretty good name. Um, and so they hook this kid up with a good name. And then the author just kind of throws in, just kind of almost like a, like a parenthesis side note. Oh yeah, by the way, he's the, great grand, or he's the grandfather of the greatest king that Israel has ever known. Like he just kind of slides it in there. Father of Jesse, father of David. Oh, okay. Like David, like, king, yeah, King David. The one, right? And then it goes into this genealogy of Perez. And, and sometimes, I, I, know, I know what you guys are thinking. I, I, I've been there. Most of the time when we get to genealogy in the Bible, what do we do? All right, next chapter, right? Like, we just kind of, it's, it's kind of like the movie credits, right? Like when the movie's over, everybody gets up and leaves and the credits are just scrolling and nobody cares, Right? But genealogies, they do have a purpose in the Bible. They have an important purpose. And a lot of times they have theological implications to them and what's going on here. And so here, they start with Perez. And what's interesting is Perez is actually the father of the Bethlehemites. Okay? So all these families that live in Bethlehem, that, this, that Boaz and Ruth and Naomi are a part of, they can all track their lineage back to a single guy named Perez. Okay? So they start there. But if you were a good Jew, you knew who Perez was. And so there's some genealogy that's inferred that's not even written in here because everybody reading this in the original um, audience would have already known where Perez came from. But some of us might not, so let's play catch up. Can we do that? Okay. So Perez was the son of Judah by Tamar. Okay. Which has a whole other thing we'll talk about here in a little bit. But Judah was one of the sons of Israel one of the original 12, right? And so Judah was the son of Jacob by Leah, all right, that's good. And Jacob was the son of Isaac by Rebekah. Isaac is the favored child that was given to Abraham and Sarah that started the whole line of Israel. So Perez is just five generations removed from the guy, Abraham. Are you with me? So when they start with Perez, they were thinking, oh, Abraham, gotcha. 
And then it lays out 10 generations here. It says Perez to Nashon. It gives us five generations there. Now, those generations actually span a much bigger time period than five generations. It starts with the patriarchs all the way through Exodus, through the wilderness. There were a whole lot more generations than just five. What they're doing here is they're giving you the highlights. This is not an exhaustive genealogy. You can go back into some of the other Old Testament books and find a more exhaustive genealogy, okay? This is just the highlights. They did this a lot whenever they were leading up to a big moment like King David, okay? They would just give you the big guys along the way. And then the second five, Solomon to David, are again five generations, and they span Joshua's life and the judges' time period and then the kingdom time period, okay? And so the author is telling us, like, this whole Ruth story we've been talking about, it's not just a cool story of redemption and Boaz showing up like this is leading somewhere. And it leads to David, who, again, the original audience would have known was the messianic line. He was the one who was promised that there would always be a king on his throne, the one who was promised that one day a son will be born to your family that will save the world, that will be the Messiah. And what's cool about that is Boaz, we've been studying this whole time, not only does he foreshadow the great redeemer of all, his family line is the one who's going to bring him to pass. Right? He's the one, he's going to have Obed, who's the great, who's going to be the, uh, the great grandson, David, which is then going to lead up to Christ, as we're going to see here in a little bit. See, God always, it's always God's idea to redeem. He's always got a plan, and he's always working it out to get to Jesus. We have three daughters. Most of you have met them or, or know of them. And five, three, and one. Uh, getting ready to change all those ages soon, but that's where they're at right now, so I just stay with that. And, um, and one of the things that I, I've noticed is even already at five and three, and not quite one yet, but five and three, they're already wanting to play prince and princess and mommy and daddy and marriage and wet, practice the wedding and they're already talking about all this stuff and I, and I know from from experience that not every female but most they start the whole wedding planning thing pretty early when they're like and it might all change by the time they get there but like they're already making plans and how they want this and they want that and it's a long time the, the guy we're just like the last peg in in the whole puzzle like we're it's just like the last piece that drops in right but so they're planning this whole thing and, and it's a lot of work, right? And so they, they, they plan, and they wait, and they sacrifice, and they get prepared, and finally the day comes, right? Finally the day comes, and all the family's there, and all the friends are there, and they're excited, and it's going to be awesome, and they've been working hard for this, and they're going to take part. And, and can you imagine if you were that bride, and right as you get ready to walk down the aisle, the groom gets up, and he's like, you know what? This isn't really my idea for a wedding. This isn't really what I was thinking. I'm I'm going to go find a different one. So you, I'm good. And they, he just walks out and leaves. How would, how would that make her feel? Right? That would be pretty crushing. That's how God feels when we try to come up with our own idea for what redemption should look like. God's been planning this for a lot longer than we have. And God has a plan on how he wants redemption to work in our lives. And when we come in and start trying to put our plan, our spin, our way, and force what we want into his redemption plan, it doesn't go well. And it pains the heart of the Father. So, the question I would ask you here is, where in your life do you need redemption today? 
I'm not saying you're not saved. I know most of you in here, if not all of you are saved, and that's great. But that's not the only time we need redemption. There's constantly stuff in our life that the Holy Spirit is revealing to us that needs to be corrected, that needs to be fixed, that's broken, and we need Christ to come and redeem us again in those areas. So where in your life today do you need redemption? That maybe you're trying to work out that redemption for yourself instead of looking for God's plan for that redemption. You need to trust that to him. He's been doing this a lot longer than you have and doing it with a lot better track record. The last thing I want you to see here about redemption is this. My redemption is only found in Christ. My redemption is only found in Christ. There is no other means for redemption and salvation outside of Jesus. Acts chapter 4, verse 11 and 12, it says, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I don't think, I don't really expect that we have Major, many major problems with that tonight. I think most of us are pretty much on that page. But here's the deal. Most people, even Christians sometimes, unfortunately, even though we know that to be true, we're continually seeking other sources of redemption. We're continually seeking other answers to the problem rather than going to the one who is the answer. And so I want to give you here just a really practical list of seven false redeemers. Seven false redeemers. Seven things that we go to and we try to seek the answer and seek redemption and fix the problem rather than going to Christ. Okay? So you can jot these down. Here's the first one. First one's wealth. Money, material goods, inheritance. We think if I can just get enough of, of wealth, then I can buy what I need to buy and pay this and take care of that and I won't have any more problems and it'll fix it all. And it doesn't. In fact, oftentimes it usually makes some more problems that you have to deal with. But so many people in our world, that's their answer to it all. If I just have enough, then I can fix it. And it's a false redeemer. Second one is a, maybe hits a little bit closer to home, especially for the church and for Christians, and that's actually marriage and family. Now we value marriage and family in the church. It's, we, we praise it and we love it and it's great but it's not your redeemer. You're not gonna find that one person who's gonna fix all your problems and make you happy for the rest of your life and complete you. And like, that's, that's not the way it works. I hope you find a great spouse and I hope you have a great spouse and I hope, that all, I hope all those things for your relationship, but they, if you put all your hope in them to help and save and fix your brokenness, they cannot bear that weight. Only Jesus can do that. And your kids can't bear that weight either. I, I know that your life didn't quite go the way you wanted and you didn't make that sports team and you didn't win that award and you didn't go to that great school, but putting all your energy and effort into making their lives perfect in those areas is not gonna redeem your past. Give your kids everything you can to give them a good life. I have no problem with that. But if you're staking your or theirs redemption on that success in your family, that's going to fall flat. Jesus is the one who redeems. The third one is pleasure. 
And this comes in lots of different packages. It could be uh, that adrenaline high that you get when you're doing that one sport or you're doing that one risky thing that you love to do that just gets you that thing, you know, get your, get your blood pumping. Or it could be the happiness that you get whenever you do this activity or that activity or you're, you're with this person or that person. Or it could be even an artificial um, pleasure through alcohol or drugs or sex or any other substances that you want to put in there to try to fill that void in your life. And they feel great at first. And then as soon as whatever it is you were partaking in is over, they quickly start to diminish. And the redemption starts to slip away. And they're not fixing the problem anymore. Because one person can fix the problem. The fourth one, and this might be a little touchy right now in our, in our society, in our, in our nation, but I think it's important, and that's government. Government is not a, a quality redeemer. <laughs> and I, don't, 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 don't get me wrong, government's great. God ordained government, it's necessary. You should definitely vote. Vote for whoever you think is best. Be a part of the political system. I'm all for that. But don't think that's going to fix everything. Right? Spiritual problems need spiritual solutions. No man or government or policy or group, they're not going to be able to fix it. The problems we have in our lives and our families and our culture, that's not, I'm saying they can't do some good things. They can. But they're not going to bring the redemption that we need. That comes through Jesus. Number five. The fifth, or fifth one I had is knowledge. Some believe that if I can just learn enough and know enough and get a deeper understanding of the problem, then I'll find a solution to fix it. I don't need faith. I don't need extra stuff. I don't need, I don't need someone else coming along to, to help me in some way. I, I, just, I just have to bear down and, and learn more and know more and, the, and then I'll finally be able to have the solution. The problem is that solution is then rooted in me and in my finite mind instead of the infinite God who has every solution we could ever need. The sixth one is religion. And again, this one kind of gets a little dicey because people are like, well, like, isn't that this, like, God and religion, same thing? No, right? Religion is about a checklist. It's about all the rites and rituals and the to-do list and all the, if I just do this and do this and do this, then I'll finally earn God's favor. I'll earn my position with God. The problem is you can't ever do enough or do anything to earn that position with God. It's given freely through the one person who can redeem. The last one, is actually very similar to religion, but it can be for people who aren't religious as well, and that's good deeds. These are the people who think that surely, you know, if God is a good and loving God, surely he grades on the curve, right? And so if I just have enough stuff in the good column versus the stuff in the bad column in my life, then when he puts it on the scales, my good will tip, and, I'm, and I'll, be, I'll, be, I'll be okay. I'll, I'll be good enough to get in, right? The problem with that is we don't serve a good enough God, Right? We serve a perfect God, a holy God, and he requires that we have that same perfection and holiness in us. And the only way we get it is by him giving it to us through the perfection and holiness that comes in Jesus Christ because we can't get it ourselves. See, every one of these falls short 
when it comes to redemption. It has to come through Jesus. He's the only way, the only one. And the great news about that is that there's nothing beyond the redemption of Jesus. Not only is he the only way to get it, there's nothing he can't redeem. There's nothing that is beyond his ability to redeem. There's, so I'm not, you, don't, you don't need to turn there, but in Matthew chapter one, we have the genealogy of Jesus, right? I'm sure you've, you've seen that before or Christmas time or whatever, right? So you have this whole genealogy of Jesus. And I know you probably skipped it before because it's a genealogy and you just went to the other story, but like it's there. And, and what's unusual about that genealogy compared to all the other ones in the Bible is that most of them only deal with men. But in Jesus' genealogy, there are five women included in the genealogy. And not just any five women, five women of pretty questionable character at some point in their life, okay? And so let's just kind of walk through these real briefly here. The first one is Tamar, which we kind of mentioned earlier, right? And, and so Tamar's gig was, she was the wife of Judas' son, Ur, right? And Ur was a wicked guy, and so God killed him off. And then so she was supposed to go and then marry his brother, Onan, who was supposed to then marry her and give her children to carry on Ur's name. And he didn't want to do that. And so he played some nasty tricks on her. And so God killed him off. All right. And so then she's kind of waiting around for the next son. And then Judah didn't do her right and didn't get her married to him. And so eventually Judah's wife dies and he's in mourning. And in his brokenness and craziness, he goes out looking for some um, companionship and ends up finding this woman who is happens to be Tamar, his previous daughter-in-law. And she gets pregnant and has twins, one of which is Perez, which leads to our story. This is a woman that's in Jesus' family line. Right? The second one is Rahab. Rahab literally means pride, insolence, savagery. She was a Canaanite. She was an enemy of God, an enemy of his people. She was a prostitute. She was a liar, a pretty good liar, actually. Um, because when the Hebrew spies came in and she, they were trying to get away from the guys who were chasing them, she hides them in her house and convinces them they're not there and gets them out safely. And then when they come and destroy the city, they save her and her family because of what she did for them. And she gets to become an Israelite. And we don't know for sure, the Bible doesn't say, but there's some pretty good speculation that she could very well be actually be Boaz's mom. But either way, she's in Jesus' family line. Right? The next one is Ruth, which we've studied her this whole book. Right? She was a Moabite. She's from this people who came from an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters. And, this whole, and they hated God's people and they were enemies of God's people. And yet she's brought in and she gets to be a part of the Jewish people. And again, be a part of Jesus' family line. The next one's Bathsheba. Right? Beautiful woman, married to Uriah. Things are going well. David sees her, decides he wants her. They commit adultery. She ends up getting pregnant. He has to kill off the, the, her husband to try to cover it up. And this adulterous woman ends up becoming the mother of Solomon, who again is in the line of Jesus. And then the fifth woman is actually Mary, his mother, which we know Mary was actually a very godly woman. She was engaged. She was she was a teenage virgin girl engaged to Joseph and, and there were really no problems here, but the angel comes and says, hey, you're going to have a baby. And she was like, I think you got the wrong house, right? Like, I don't think that's possible. And he's like, no, seriously, it's going to happen. And so then Joseph gets freaked out thinking, well, she's 
obviously done something she shouldn't have done because it wasn't with me and I don't know what that's going to mean. And so he's going to divorce her and walk away and the angel has to come tell him, no, you're not going anywhere. Like this is legit. And so he comes and he gets to be her husband and be the father of Jesus. And even though Mary didn't do anything wrong, everyone around her thought she did. Right? They thought that she was a sinful, perverted liar. These are the people in Jesus' family. (laughs) These are the messed up, broken people in the literal human family of Jesus. And so if these messed up people, if there's room for them in his family, guess what? There's room for you too. And there's room for me. Because there's nothing that's beyond the redemption of Jesus. All of this stuff is nothing to him. He can redeem all of it. He can can take all of it for his glory and make it good. And so there's no reason for you not to run to him for redemption. Matthew, that wrote this genealogy, he wrote his book to religious people. People who tend to be self-righteous and think they kind of have it all together. A lot like, I don't know, some American church people. Right? Sometimes we, we, we start thinking that way. But what this list shows us is that Jesus was never about religion. He was never about self-righteousness. He was about redemption. Because religion just follows checklists and rules and laws and redemption is about me saying, no, I'm a sinner and I'm broken and I can't do this on my own. And going to the one who can. So in that vein, I have a video I want to show you. This is a testimony of a guy at another harvest in our fellowship of churches. I want you to see just another picture of what it means to experience the redemption of Christ. Used to be arrested a lot and spent a lot of time in the court system. By the time I was 21, I was tired of it. So right when I turned 21, I met my wife, Angela. I ran the back fender of my car into a cement yellow pole and he did body work at the time. And I remember seeing her in uh, flannel and Timberland boots. She sucked me in and I, I, I sent him inside with my uh, phone number and uh, she sent back out her phone number. Um, he was drinking at the time, uh, but we were both in our early 20s and it wasn't until um, after we got married and started having kids that I started noticing a difference. The more stress, the more responsibilities I had, the more I drank. You know, my wife began hammering down on me about the drinking. I didn't know how to handle it, and it was just a progression of me lying, saying I'm sober when I'm not. Me telling myself that I would sober up, and, uh, and I couldn't do it. There was one night that I got a call at work from Francesca when she was about five years old and said that she couldn't wake Daddy up. If Daddy was breathing, it was just pretty much an awful thing to have to ask her. I still had so much anger and rage and resentment at my wife, a lot of it. We were not getting along. She didn't trust me, and rightfully so. I realized that I was missing something, and I began to look on the internet um, just for sermons and preaching, and I found James McDonald, and I found Greg Laurie. I just became consumed with it. I began to feel relief of the obsession, the craving, the want 
for alcohol. I would hear words like repentance and, uh, you know, grace. So one day I made the prayer my own and I went in my garage. I got on my knees and, and I, I gave my life to Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.16 says, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is lifted. And that's exactly what happened to me. So I decided to come to Harvest, actually, in Rolling Meadows and go to church. It sucked me in, everything, the worship, all these songs I've never heard uh, singing like that ever. And I loved it, and something was touching me in my heart, you know, and saying, you need to be here. And I decided, you know what, I'm going to start reading the Bible. I don't understand it. But as I started reading the Bible more, I began to understand it more. And all over there, there's be sober, be sober. And I'm like, yes, that's me. And I figured if anybody would be supportive of it, it would be my wife, and, and she was not, and I was, I was devastated. I had been told so many times by him that he was making changes and he was trying, and I thought this was just another one of his ploys to get me to stick around. Every time that he prayed and we prayed together, there would be results in my life. <laughs> and I was more and more angry and more and more resentful. And then I would think, well, why does he get to be happy and I don't get to be happy? He asked me on Father's, Father's Day weekend to go with him to service. And I said, as a gift for Father's Day, I'll go with you. To say that I was overwhelmed is an understatement when I walked into the Rolling Meadows campus but I was also greeted immediately by people that I didn't know. And my immediate reaction was, why are these people so nice to me? They don't know me. They don't know the kind of things that I've done. The worship was amazing. I had never experienced anything like that. And I had this feeling inside of me where I wanted to cry and I would be like, just stop it, you're being a baby. What are you crying about? It's just music, get over yourself. January 6th, 2013, I called Holly Rugi, Mike's wife, and I said, I'm really struggling. I need, I need some guidance. I don't really know what I'm doing, but I, I'm not getting it. And she asked me, how do you feel when you're at church? And I told her I have crazy emotions when I'm in worship and I tend to stuff them. And she's like, let it go. That's the Holy Spirit trying to talk to you. And it was at that moment that I realized I was fighting it. I was the barrier between having that moment and not having it. And she um, prayed for me. And then I said, all right, I'm all in. Do you want this angry, anxious, miserable person? It's yours, because I can't do it anymore. And that was it. That was the moment. I felt something come inside of me. I had a feeling in my heart that I've never felt before. And I ran in the house and Tom was in the shower and I busted in the bathroom and I was like, that's it, I had it, it's done. I, I had the moment. It was amazing, I was so filled with joy. You know, I could see the veil being lifted from her face too because all of a sudden, immediately, you know, I see her just seeing things differently. It was a huge transition in my life, knowing that I don't have to bear the burden. I don't have to carry this by myself, that he's there to help me. Sometimes I'll get a glimpse of my wife or I don't know what she'll be doing, making dinner or ministering to a friend or somebody, and I'm just like, who is this godly woman, you know? And, uh, and I say, yes, that's my beautiful wife. I was an angry, rageful alcoholic who was destroying his family and himself physically and mentally to 
God hearing me and uh, saving me and drawing me to himself and uh, softening my heart to now a uh, God-fearing, God-loving man. Those, I mean, that's just one story, but that's, that's the kind of stuff that we're talking about. That's what God does. God is a redeemer. And so what's keeping you from finding full redemption in Christ? What's that look like for you? And again, I'm not necessarily talking about salvation, although if you need that, if you've never experienced giving your life to Christ like Tommy just talked about, then I hope that happens for you as well. But even if you've already crossed that bridge, what else in your life are you still needing God to step in and fix that brokenness? That part of you, that part of your relationship, that part of your past that's still struggling. And and connected to that, where else are you looking for redemption outside of Jesus? Because if you have those broken things in your life and you're not taking them to Jesus, you are taking them somewhere. And which of those seven false redeemers are you leaning on and are you trusting in to help you get through that broken thing in your life? You need to identify that and you need to cast that off and you need to turn to the one who can actually redeem. Because my redemption is from the Lord alone. As I said, I'll just, if you're here tonight and you don't know Christ, if you haven't made that decision for a relationship, here's the way it works. Every one of us, myself included, we're born sinful people. We're sinners by nature, by choice. And we need, to be, re- we need our, to be redeemed from our sin. We need to be saved from our sin. And the only person who can do that is Jesus because God sent his son to live on this earth as a human. And he lived a perfect life, never sinned. And then he died a sinner's death, not to pay for his sin, but to pay for your sin and to pay for my sin. And three days later, he rose again to show that he was the victor, that he had conquered sin and death, and to offer us new life and freedom from sin and cleansing from our past and redemption from all the brokenness in our life. The only thing you have to have to have that is to turn from your sin and turn to Jesus and embrace him as a Savior and as a Lord from this point forward. And if you'll do that, you'll experience the kind of redemption we've been talking about tonight. So I'm going to pray. If you want that, you can pray for that right now and ask the Lord to do that in your heart. If you already have that and you need redemption in some other area, pray for that right now. And ask the Holy Spirit to come and start working in that area of your life. And I'm going to pray the same thing. And then I have some things I want to talk to you guys about tonight before we leave. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for our time together tonight. Thank you, Lord, for the the truth and the power of your word. Lord, the reminders that we have in every story, in every page, in every letter of your scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament, always pointing to the God who redeems and to your son through which redemption is possible. And so Father, I pray right now, Lord, that for everyone here, myself included, Lord, whatever area of our life is still broken, whatever area of our life is still in need of redemption, Lord, that you would make that clear. You would show us. Lord, you would point to that thing in our hearts right now by the power of your Holy Spirit and you would, you would lead us to Christ, the only one who can bring that redemption in our heart and lives.
Lord, we're tired of fighting. We're tired of struggling. We're tired of trying to do it on our own. Come and take these things from us. Cover us in the redemption of Jesus Christ. Pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.